Well, with the confidence, the joy that we have in the gospel, we can face any enemy, we can face any uh, scary things that uh, life may throw at us. And uh, the passage we're going to read is indeed about a scary demonic beast. Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Now I was standing on the seashore, and I saw a beast of prey coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten diadems, and on his heads blasphemous names. The beast that I saw was similar to a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority, and one of his heads was as if it had been mortally wounded. But his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled after the beast. And they did obeisance to the dragon, who had given the authority to the beast, and they did obeisance to the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things, that is, blasphemy, and he was given authority to make war 42 months. So he opened that mouth of his in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given him over every tribe and language and ethnic nation. All who dwell on the earth will do obeisance to him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slaughtered from the foundation of the world. If anyone has has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has captivity, he goes away. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the endurance and the faith of the saints. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we dig into it, we pray that uh, you would feed our souls and that you would also give to us the wisdom to make a difference in culture. Help us to not be irrelevant, but help us to apply the gospel and your law to every square inch of territory that Satan claims. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw last week that the Beast of Revelation is a fairly controversial figure. There are literally hundreds of different identities that people have given Uh, to this fearsome monster, and yet we also saw that even though there is disagreement on the exact identity of the beast, the vast majority of commentaries agree about two things. They agree that this has something to do with civil government, and secondly, this civil government is statist through and through. And uh, so the bulk of our applications in this chapter really are not going to be controversial at all. Whether you see the beast as being in the first century, as I do, or whether you see it as being future to us, as dispensationalists do, we can at least agree that demons are indeed trying to get governments to become more and more centralized and more and more statist. And so I find it cool that there's at least this much agreement on at least the application of this chapter. Now, before we dive into verses 2 through 4, let me review what we discovered last week. We saw that the first two clauses clearly tie this beast in with Daniel chapter 7 and the fourth beast there. And most people agree that the fourth beast of Daniel 7 is tightly connected with the empire of Rome. Now, there are some, as I've mentioned, that think that that Roman empire will again get revived in the future, almost like a double fulfillment. I don't see it that way. But at least even they agree 
that it at least was impartially fulfilled, the fourth beast, in the first century, and that these things definitely apply to the fourth beast. And even if we had not looked at Daniel chapter 7, we might have guessed that simply because of where John was standing. He was standing on the Mediterranean seashore looking where? He was looking toward Rome. And of course, the whole Mediterranean was controlled by Rome, and the beast is coming up from the direction of Rome. So we might have guessed it had something to do with Rome. But we also saw that John had earlier identified the beast in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, as being a demon that comes up out of the abyss. So which is it? Is it Rome or is it a demon? Well, we saw that um, uh, the only reason the empire is called the beast is because of the demon who controls the beast, uh, controls the empire, I should say. And the only reason that uh, the emperors Nero and Vespasian and Titus were called the beast is because of the demon who controlled uh, those emperors. But first and foremost, Paul, uh, John wants us to realize that this, de- this was a demon that came up out of the abyss. We will have many puzzles in the book of Revelation if we do not understand the demonic uh, origin of this beast. And knowing that Rome was controlled by a demon is scary enough. But when you look at the description of this fourth beast that's given in Daniel 7 and Revelation uh, chapter 13, it's so terrifying. You realize you don't want your kids cuddling up to this beast in their homeschooling. A lot of homeschoolers are really savvy about Rome, love Rome and all of the wisdom of Rome in their classical education. But Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 wants us to be so disgusted with the ugliness of this beast, we are not even remotely tempted to nurse at its side or receive of its dainties. Listen to this description of the same beast, the exact same beast that Revelation 13 is describing. This comes from Daniel 7, verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It was dreadful and terrible. Now, if you wouldn't send your kids out to the playground to play with this as a pet, a pet monster, you know, so to speak, and I don't think any of you would, You probably shouldn't have this monster tutoring your children either in classical education. Last week we saw that the wisdom of Rome was thoroughly demonic. And if you want a fabulous vision of how God wants us to distance ourselves from Rome, read Daniel 2, that was the image of the human statue, read Daniel 7, and read Revelation 13 and 17. It is is a mind opener on this subject. Now let me quickly identify the features of this beast that are listed in verse 1. We saw that the seven heads are the first seven human emperors of Rome, starting with Julius Caesar and ending with Vespasian. We saw that the ten horns are ten demonic rulers who rule under the beast and who help the beast to maintain control of that empire. But those demons are certainly over the human heads and they influence those human heads. So the ten horns are not humans. They are the demons behind the humans. The fact that the ten horn uh, crowns are on the horns rather than on the heads 
shows that it wasn't really the emperors who were the power behind the empire. The true power was demonic. It was the demons who were ruling through these human emperors. And so we saw that statism is demonic through and through. And that's true of any form of statism. Well, you're looking at everybody, you know, loves to say North Korea. Yeah, that's statism on steroids. That's terrible. But our form of statism is okay. No, 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 no. All statism is demonic uh, to the core, whether it's found in America or whether it's found in Sweden or wherever. Satan really doesn't care what form of government you have so long as the essential core characteristics of statism are present. Statism is the religion of this demon, okay? Statism enables the demon to have control of its citizens, and it is antithetical to Christianity. That is something we Christians have to get into the core of our beings. It is antithetical to Christianity. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not hurrying over this chapter. I really want us to understand this chapter. Now, looking at these symbols, we saw last week that statism is expansive. Uh, all four bestial empires were constantly growing just as Rome was. So when a state becomes huge, it becomes dangerous. When a state ha exerts its military all over the world, it becomes dangerous. Uh, when a state is constantly expanding its power base, it becomes dangerous. So statism is expansive, it is growing. Next, we saw that statism is centralized in one executive head. And people might say, no, wait a shake, there's seven heads on this monster. How could it be you know, centralized in one head? But remember we saw that these heads weren't all ruling at the same time. They were seven sequential emperors, starting with Julius Caesar and going all the way up through Vespasian. So Julius Caesar was the first Roman ruler to usurp powers that the Romans never had before. Uh, it was a, a, a radical usurpation of power on uh, his part, and each head represents an increasingly centralized executive office. So statism is centralized. That's the principle. And by the way, this was the antithesis of our Constitution. As much as people criticize our Constitution, we've got to realize there are a lot of good things in it. Uh, our Constitution delegated certain powers. They were not usurped. They delegated certain powers to the federal government, enumerated those powers, specified, said that they were limited and all other rights were reserved to the states and to the people. In other words, according to our Constitution, the federal government cannot do anything that's not explicitly laid out in the document of the Constitution. Now, statism wants to erode that idea there are limited, delegated, specified, and enumerated powers. It's always pushing for more and more centralization under one head. And when you see people arguing, and I've heard this so many times, that the checks and balances that we have are so inefficient, we need more efficient government, and we need to give the executive the power to be able to deal with terrorists and to deal with uh, you know, some of the tragedies and the disasters that are out there, smell a demon in the room. There is a demon in that conversation, okay? Um, and people say, Phil, you're just demonizing politics. Well, God is demonizing politics. He's the one, okay? Now, we also saw that statism seeks to be messianic. Why not? Satan is imitating Christ. You would expect them to be messianic. 
Verse 1 says, and on his heads blasphemous names. Now keep in mind that each of the heads was another emperor. So how were the blasphemous names written on an emperor's head? Well, we looked at Roman coins that had the blasphemous names written on the head side of the coin, right over the heads of all seven emperors. And I referenced coins that had names and titles like Lord, Father, Life Giver, Son of God, High Priest, Gracious Savior, God, of the God, Savior, and the citizens having been saved. See, those blasphemous names are all calling the state God and Savior. Now, we think we would never do that. You know, we don't explicitly worship and bow down to the state. That's true. We don't. And we don't explicitly call the state Lord. But I think many times we act as if the state is Lord and Savior. Well, verse 2 continues the description of the fourth beast of Daniel. It says, The beast that I saw was similar to a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, the three beasts that are mentioned there were the three previous empires of Daniel chapter 7, with the lion being Babylon, uh, and the bear being Medo-Persia, and the leopard being Greece, or at least the, the demon uh, behind each of those empires. And Rome had features of the previous three empires. It, in some ways, was similar to the previous three empires. And you might say, why? Well, when you study Daniel 7, you, you look at some of the different scriptures, I believe it's because the demons of the previous three empires are somehow allowed to continue with Rome. Uh, they're influencing Rome as well. And so uh, Daniel 7 says the fourth beast is much worse uh, than the previous empires were. Why? Because it's much more demonized than the previous empires were. Uh, did the demon himself look a bit like these animals? It's possible. Uh, I doubt it very much, uh, but it's possible. But commentators point out that John's use of the Greek word meaning similar to or like in that verse indicates something symbolic is being written here. And so we want to look at the meaning of each of these symbols. First of all, the leopard. Verse 2 says, the beast that I saw was similar to a leopard. Now, since this is a Hebraic book, we've always been going back, uh, as John admonished us to, we're always going back to the Old Testament background, and we saw in Daniel chapter 7 that there were two beasts that uh, were likened to a leopard. There was Greece, there was Rome. Rome inherits this characteristic. But let me take a look at what was symbolized with Greece, since Greece was a leopard uh, that had... Um, uh, 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 wings and four heads. Thomas Robinson represents many when he says that the wings on that leopard spoke of the incredible speed with which Alexander the Great conquered uh, the world. The spots represent the diversity of nations within that empire. Uh, the four heads represented the four parts of that empire ruled by four generals. And the leopard's body represents the cruelty and the bloodthirstiness of Greece. Well, this beast here is lacking the wings and the uh, four heads. So the only part of Rome that is comparable to Greece was the body of the leopard and its spots. Was Rome a spotted 
beast. Yes, he was, very much so. Historians say that there was an enormous ethnic variety uh, within the Roman Empire with every skin color and every language represented, even in the legions that came against Jerusalem. And so Rome was definitely a spotted beast. It was multicultural. And commentators point out that the cruelty and the bloodthirstiness of the leopard are a perfect symbol for, uh, for Rome as well. Now, animal lovers might get really upset with me at this point and say there is no way that you can accuse leopards of being cruel and bloodthirsty. But I would just challenge you, if you're one of those people who's skeptical about the bloodthirstiness of a leopard, just do a little reading on on the web and do a search, for example, under surplus killing. Just that phrase, surplus killing, and you will see that leopards are one of a few different animals that has this tendency to kill way, way, way more than it will eat, sometimes apparently killing just for the sake, for the fun of killing. Uh, one recent study at an African game reserve showed that 42% of the leopard kills during that, um, during that study, I forget how many years it was going over, 42% of the leopard kills were wanton um, uh, killings, uh, multiple kills that went way beyond anything that the leopard could or would eat. Uh, last year, uh, conservationists were outraged that a leopard killed 33 African penguins at the nature reserve outside of Cape Town, uh, South Africa. Now, he didn't kill for eating. He just seemed like he was killing for the fun of killing. And if you've watched leopards play and tease their prey, you will see that there is some cruelty that this animal is displaying in some way. It's one of the effects of the fall that you see on various animals. And what a perfect symbol of Rome. Was Rome cruel? I think almost everybody agrees that Rome was unbelievably cruel. Just look at how they put down the slave rebellions. Wow, was that cruel. Unbelievable. Look at how they treated criminals and crucifixions. Uh, sometimes upwards of 10,000 crosses that people were hanging on. It was one of the most barbarous, torturous forms of, uh, of cruelty out there. Uh, Josephus records that in the uh, war against Israel, there were upwards of 500 Jews that were being crucified every day by the Romans. And it got to a point where it looked like a forest of crosses around the city. Okay, So you can look at things like that. You can look at the cruelty at the circuses and the gladiatorial races. Caligula and Nero were perhaps the most notorious for finding delight in torture, but you can see that in other emperors as well. So Rome was definitely noted for cruelty, but it was also noted for surplus killing or bloodthirstiness. At the very same time that Rome claimed to be the savior, the provider, the protector of people, of the whole world, uh, it was engaged in prolonged, sustained killing of many of the same peoples that it was the savior and the protector of. It was not just war theory. Whether you're looking at their regular wars or their so-called war against terror, it was not just war theory. It was intimidation theory. It was bloodthirstiness. It was surplus killing. 1.8 million people died in Rome's Punic Wars. 
And you look at that and you wonder, really, was it really necessary to kill off that much of the population? Um, it killed two to eight million Jews between AD 67 and 74, depending on which studies you read. And it is just staggering uh, to read, you know, the Gallic Wars, one million. Uh, you, you just start going through the different wars. It is staggering to see the number of people that Rome killed off. Uh, and I believe the leopard quality of uh, this demon finds delight in killing large numbers of people. I was rather humored to read a, a favorable comparison that one scholar gave to America's war against terror and Rome's war against terror. It's not a very favorable comparison. I was amazed that any American would admit to this right, right this way. But anyway, they listed the rebels of Israel as the terrorists and Rome as the peacekeeper and then they listed all kinds of other freedom fighters who were terrorists around the empire. And you look at some of their situations. Israel actually had more freedoms than many others. But some of these freedom fighters, they were starving. They were, it, was, it was such unbearable conditions. They were simply fighting to cast off enormous tyranny. Yet this writer has the audacity to call them the terrorists and Rome as the peacekeeper. And he says, Rome really has a good is a good model for our war against terror now when i when you look at the number of deaths that have been inflicted by the so-called terrorists upon rome which is really small in number compared to the number of people rome killed in retaliation you can see that the killings are not proportional at all in fact it makes you wonder who's the real terrorist was it those freedom fighters or was it rome it really does make you wonder. And it's one way of evaluating whether modern wars have this demonic feature to them. Are the killings proportional? Do they follow just war theory? Most modern conflicts really do not. We start bloody wars where we have never had one American soldier who has died, one American citizen who has died. We start the wars and start the killings. Now, we die later, but... The bottom line with the bulk of this image is Rome did not value life. And this is what the demons of statism produce in almost every country that they influence. The more power they get, the more cruel the leaders become. And more people have been tortured and killed under communism in the last century than in any other previous century. Now, we love to point the finger at the communists because they're notorious, right? Very notorious. But all statists tend to devalue life while pretending to be the defenders of life. It's really hypocritical for America to consider itself to be the champion of life and liberty when our laws have put to death more than 50 million babies through abortion since 1973. Okay? Who is the terrorist? People who kill thousands? or a nation who has killed 50 million babies. And it's even worse worldwide. All one has to do to compare the rhetoric of compassion with reality in virtually every modern nation is just to see how many abortions have taken place. And by the way, th that issue of abortion illustrates how this demon is a master at deception. You know, they, they look at the cruelty of abortion and they call it compassion. Their rhetoric is the rhetoric of compassion, but it really is cruelty. Even Wikipedia estimates that 56 million abortions are performed every year worldwide. 
So there's a lot more going on around the world than here in America. The picture that John wants us to have of all statism is that this demonic stronghold eventually produces an utter disrespect for life. It is bestial. It is cruel. It is leopard-like. The next symbol is that his feet were like those of a bear. Now, who wants to meet up with a bear? I don't. Most people don't. Its paws can crush. Its claws can just eviscerate. Uh, it is um, a symbol of rule, not by authority, but rule by brute force. Now, you read Plato and Aristotle and their views on civics, and you will see that this demon is at work. It is statism through and through. You see the paws of this beast in Hitler's Mein Kampf, in, uh, Stal uh, in uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto, but I think you even see it to some degree in America's manifest destiny. And you look at some of the treatment of the Philippine, Filipinos and, and others. I think you see it even there. If the, here, here's the issue. Might makes right is the motto for status. And if the state passes a law, you better obey it or else. No one even considers whether the law is itself lawful and constitutional. They just say, hey, the state passed it. It must be right. Well, that's not the original American civics, and it's not biblical civics. The next symbol is that of a lion, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. Daniel 7 describes the mouth of this beast this way. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring. Modern professors of civics look at all the wonderful things that the state gives to its citizens, and they do not see the state as being a devouring monster. No, they see it as being a harmless benefactor, a wonderful benefactor. I took a, a look at uh, the services that are listed on the website on city, county, state, and federal uh, websites, just what's listed as a service that they provide out of their kindness to the citizens, and it really is astonishing how many there are there. Uh, federal services page listed services under the categories of earth and environment, health care, legal services, small business aid, grants or loans, education, housing, travel, disaster response, providing jobs for the unemployed, consumer issues, food quality, and the list goes on and on. Our city and county websites listed services such as county clinics, parks, libraries, education, welfare, transportation, public safety, environmental oversight, housing, licensing, etc. Now to the uninformed citizen, that looks like anything but a devouring beast. It looks wonderful to them. It looks like a loving mother who cares for her children, who's providing very generously to her children. But we need this image of the devouring lion's mouth burnt into our memories. Federal services are not generous. Okay, every dime that the civil government gives to citizen A, it has to steal from citizen B and C. And if citizens B and C balk at that, and they don't want to pay those services, what happens? The state threatens to harm them, pay or else. That's not generosity. That is the lion's roar threatening violence. It is evil. It is a devouring mouth. It devours the productivity of citizens B and C. And the political discourse of today obscures that fact with their rhetoric of compassion and of human rights. 
And it's not really a Democrat or a Republican thing, you know. Josh talks about different tribes that are out there and differences within those tribes, and it obscures the real issues. There are statists of the right and of the left. I listened to a video of Bernie Sanders asserting that every man, woman, and child uh, has a basic human right to top-notch medical care. Why he threw the top-notch in there, I don't know, but they have a basic um, right to that and that the state must provide that. Well, Rand Paul then spoke as a medical doctor, and he said that Bernie's views of rights means that the state has the right to enslave the doctor, force him to labor for certain segments of the society for free, and if need be, to break down his door if he does not comply with state directives to give that medical care. Okay? He said it's not rights, it is violence and theft. He said that he provides free medical care out of his own generosity, but he objects to the government forcing doctors to provide care on the threat of violence. Now, when you look at that video, that short little dialogue, I think beautifully illustrates the rhetoric of compassion, but behind that rhetoric is the face of this lion, this devouring lion. And whether either tribe, and there are multiple tribes actually, aren't there, uh, Josh? Not just two here in the States. Uh, ad, when any of these tribes advocate for, for civil government providing the so-called right of free education, one must reinterpret it to mean that they're advocating the right for the lion to steal money from me under threat of harm if I do not comply, so as to pay for somebody else's education. And in the process of paying for that education, of course, they skim off a large percentage of the loot. I mean, the lion has to feed itself too, right? You got the, you gotta, you gotta be able to continue this coercive thing. And so there is huge amounts of money that go to paying for the large appetite of the lion. Now that analysis may seem harsh to you, but what I want to get across to you is this is God's perspective on the welfare programs, the services, all of the wonderful things that Rome provided for its citizens. Rome saw itself as generous, as the answer to man's problems. By the way, the modern welfare state looks to Rome, and they say they are a great model of what we should be. Okay, so they see it as generous. God did not view it as generosity. He viewed it this way, Daniel 7, verse 7, a fourth beast dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. And as you read more and more in Revelation 13 and 17, you realize we need to avoid this beast at all costs. St. Augustine was probably one of the greatest theologians of the past. He lived from 354 to 430. He lived during the Roman Empire. And this is his evaluation of actually any civil government that does not submit to God's laws, does not define justice by God's definition of justice. I'm reading from his book, The City of God. He said, justice removed then, what are kingdoms but great bands of robbers? What are bands of robbers themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men, it is governed by the authority of a ruler. It is bound together by a pact of association, and the loot is divided according to an agreed law. 
If by the constant addition of desperate men the scourge grows to such a size that it acquires territory, establishes a seat of government, occupies cities, and subjugates peoples, it assumes the name of a kingdom more openly. For this name is now manifestly conferred upon it, not by the removal of greed, but by the addition of impunity. It was a pertinent and true answer which was made to Alexander the Great by a pirate whom he had seized. When the king asked him what he meant by infesting the sea, the pirate defiantly replied, the same as you do when you infest the whole world, but because I do it with a little ship, I am called a robber, and because you do it with a great fleet, you are an emperor. See, Augustine was recognizing that when states do not see their authority as being derived from God, as limited by Scripture, as being accountable to God, then the state itself becomes a pirate that takes from you with nary a thank you. Now, he likens it to a pirate. John likens it to a beast. And between the body of a leopard, the paws of a bear, and the mouth of a lion with iron teeth, I think that this beast characterizes most modern states around the world. Their paws trample so many good businesses into the ground with myriad taxes, regulations, rules, licenses, antitrust laws, employment laws, etc. The mouth devours liberties, taxes, business opportunities owns our properties, is beginning to claim ownership of our children, and its authority knows no bounds. Modern America and most Western states have drifted far from their Christian roots. And just to show you, some people will just, you know, like, whoa, what is Pastor Kaiser saying on this? Just read the documents of our founding fathers. They talk like this all the time. This was exactly their view of government, what I am presenting to you. Read the, the sermons that were delivered. I've got a couple of massive volumes filled with political sermons that were delivered in the 1600s, 1700s. They preached this stuff all the time. This is nothing new, but we have drifted so far from our Christian roots that even Christians do not recognize it. Um, We have the rhetoric of compassion, the rhetoric of limited government, the rhetoric of one nation under God. We still have on our money, in God we trust, but the reality is quite different. Now, don't bother immigrating. I know people, friends who want to immigrate. Don't bother immigrating. It won't do you any good. It's way better here in America than it is anywhere else in the world, and we need to fight to make it better, uh, to bring it back to its roots. We at least have a great constitution to bring people back to, but don't, don't immigrate. Uh, but um, what we do need to realize is God views this kind of statism not as a nursing mother, but as a devouring beast of prey. Now, this beast has some similarities to the dragon of chapter 12, so some people might be tempted to identify the beast with Satan himself, just a different image of Satan. I don't see how you can possibly do that because verse 2 distinguishes uh, the beast from Satan. Uh, it says, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And note the hymn there, the dragon gave the demonic beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. Now it is true that the beast has seven heads, just like the dragon had seven heads. He has ten horns and ten crowns. The only difference being that with the dragon it doesn't seem like the crowns are on the horns, they're on the heads themselves. 
So you do see similarities, but they're distinguished. Sure, they look similar because the dragon is being reflected in the beast's rule because he's reflecting the beast's authority. But it's a unique individual demon who rules a unique empire. Now, one question that might come up is this. What gave Satan the right to give power and a throne and authority to anyone? Didn't Jesus already inherit all authority, 100% of authority in heaven and earth? Yes, he did. But he did so in the same way that Joshua received Canaan when he crossed the Jordan River. And yet Hebrews says, just as Joshua had to possess his possessions, Jesus is systematically taking over the world through the church and through the two-edged sword of Scripture. So Satan and various demons will continue to have some authority over regions until apostles or missionaries or others bind the strong men in those regions and begin plundering that portion of Satan's kingdom. Now, if that's true, the implications are enormous. It means that if we are not willing to Christianize every facet of a society, including civil government, then demons will fill the void. There is no middle ground. Either Christ claims every square inch and applies his law and his authority to it, or demons will squat on every inch and give their authority and bestial laws. This is why I say we have got to apply the whole of the Bible to the whole of life and not be ashamed of it. They're going to try to make you ashamed. Demons will try to make you ashamed of God's law. But Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, I'll be ashamed of you. Okay? We've got to promote Christ. Now, the next thing to notice is the stark contrast between Satan's kingdom and Christ's kingdom on the issue of power and authority. Notice the order of what Satan gave. He first gave power, then throne, then great authority. When the only authority that is recognized is that which is wielded because a person has power and is on a throne, you have statism, and it's a usurped authority. The only reason people obey such authority is because it's backed up by a gun, by force, by power, right? They are not inspired to follow such leaders. They're intimidated into following such leaders. Now, godly authority is the exact reverse. It starts with delegated authority that God has explicitly laid out, specified in in the Scripture. And because God himself backs up the authority... And because the leaders are passionately seeking to glorify God with that authority, there is a legitimate throne and legitimate power to carry out tasks. It is the power of attraction. People gladly follow a leader who is a servant to the people and a servant to God. They're inspired by such kinds of sacrificial service. They saw the way David, for example, was willing to lay down his life for his people. He wasn't there to serve himself. And what did they do? They were inspired to do the same thing, to lay down their lives for David. This is the kind of power. It's it's a power of of influence, not a power of force. We believe we have no power to do anything that God has not authorized in his word, and God is the one who backs that up with his word. He's the one who gives power. And we move to some rather interesting history in verse 3. And one of his heads was as if it had been mortally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled after the beast. 
Now let's consider the mortal wound, or as the Greek uh, says, the wound that killed. I mean, there was a death that happened. Uh, don't say it's a, a fatal wound, but he didn't die. No, it is a fatal wound. He did die. The Greek is quite clear on that. So this, first of all, shows that statism is not invincible. That's encouraging to me. It's not invincible. It is not omnipotent. With a word, God overthrew the entire kingdom, and he did so in actually a matter of hours or days. So it's an encouragement that if God's people will be faithful, they can indeed see statism reversed. Chapter 17 goes into much more detail on the wounding, the death, the resurrection of the beast. Here he's rather cryptic. Uh, later we're going to discover, for example, that Nero was the sixth head of the beast that was wounded. But right now, I'll just give you a tiny bit of history of how that happened. Um, Nero was becoming increasingly capricious, ugly, vengeful, tyrannical, self-absorbed, and the legions and the Senate were becoming sick of it. They were fed up with it. Finally, after Nero returned from a tour of Greece where he was just showing off his musical and artistic prowess, and of course, his athletic prowess. You look at pictures of him, I think he was anything but an athlete. But miraculously, he won every race. He won every chariot race. I mean, he, he just came back glowing with his accomplishments in Greece. And this is what made things snap. So Galba was asked by the legions, he was the governor of Spain, he was asked by the legions to rule instead of Nero. We, we just cannot put up with this anymore. And Galba said, okay. So he declared himself legate of the Senate and of the Roman people. Uh, when the Praetorian Guard heard about that, they're the ones who are protecting Nero, right? They said, oh yeah, we'll go with Galba any day. This guy is such a scumbag. So they went with him. The Senate went with Galba as well. And Nero attempted to flee, but when he discovered that his arrest and imminent uh, his arrest and execution was imminent, he killed himself with the help of his secretary. He couldn't even do that to himself. And uh, put a sword through his neck up into his head. Okay, that happened on June 9, AD 68. So the head of state was literally mortally wounded in his head. But there were unintended consequences of this revolution. Not all the legions were thrilled with Galba. Some wanted Otho, some wanted Vitellius, and some wanted Vespasian, and some just wanted out. Okay, so with Nero's death, the empire fell apart, and it appeared that the beast demon was bound by God in the pit. And that bit of information we'll get to when we get to chapter 17 and 19. Uh, they go into much more detail of what happened between Nero's death and Vespasian fighting his way back into Rome, restoring the empire, declaring himself to be uh, the emperor. But this is briefer, it's more cryptic. It simply says that the beast was healed, the whole earth was amazed that the beast was healed. So here's the question that comes up uh, amongst commentators. What was healed? Okay, the wound is in the head, it's Nero. So is it Nero that is healed or is it the beast that is healed? In the first three centuries of church history, there was um, a minority view that circulated that Nero was going to get resurrected. And uh, we're going to go through this all over again. And you could sort of see where they would come up with that because there is some uh, of the passages in Revelation that connect the word beast with Nero. And if Nero's bound in the pit, and then later it says the beast comes back up 
out of the pit, they say it has to be Nero being resurrected. Now, we saw that's not the case. It's the demon who is bound, the demon who comes up, and he stands behind every emperor. But the Greek here in the text is very, very clear. Now, I, I won't get into the technicalities, but in the Greek, every noun has a gender. It's either masculine, feminine, or neuter. And every uh, article and adjective has to modify the noun by having the same gender. Well, the gender in that second uh, phrase that was dealing with the healing, the his, his fatal wound was he healed, does not modify head, it modifies beast. So even though the beast was given a fatal wound in the head in Nero, the beast is healed, not the head. Okay, so that destroys the idea that Nero would be revived. It is a, the demon beast who is released and his empire which is restored. And I think the Greek is quite clear on that. Well, if the death of Nero was the deadly wound to the empire, then the healing of the empire did not happen until Vespasian took the throne in AD 69. I'm giving you these dates because they're very critical to understanding the rest of this chapter. Very, very critical. Later in Revelation, we're going to see that the demon beast appears to have been bound during that same period of time, and we'll look at that later. But verse 3 goes on to say, and the whole earth marveled after the beast. Now, the word for earth is gay. It refers to Israel. Throughout this book, it refers to Israel. Now, it would have been no surprise to see that the Roman Empire would marvel after the beast and worship the beast. But this says it's the land of Israel that marvels after the beast. And verse 4 indicates the same referent there. It must be the land of Israel that worships the beast. How on earth could that be? You, you, you understand how the Jews resisted Rome. It just seems inconceivable, unthinkable, that they could do that. Now, some people have tried to explain this simply by saying, well, that's what uh, the Jewish leaders did at the trial of Christ. They said, we have no uh, king but Caesar. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. Let's look at the amazement first. When Nero died, the revolutionaries in Israel gained a great boost. They delighted to hear that Rome had disintegrated into three fighting factions and numerous regions were declaring independence. This was their answer to prayer, or so they thought. Okay, in fact, things got so bad that Roman historians say it was an absolute miracle that Vespasian was able to revive the empire, bring it back together again. The pro-Roman forces mourned while the pro-independence forces rejoiced. It didn't look like Rome would be able to sustain this war, and Israel might indeed gain its independence. So things looked positive for the revolutionaries, but when both Vespasian and his son Titus were declared Caesar, and when he actually pulled off the revival of the Roman Empire, the whole land of Israel was amazed. They were not expecting this. And verse 4 goes on to say something that is absolutely staggering, it shows, first of all, that the demon of statism does really long for blind loyalty. But what's amazing is that the demon was able to get the whole land of Israel to bow down to Satan through the occult, to bow down to the beast through state worship. But it just seems so uncharacteristic. And yet it happened. It happened exactly like this. Let me read verse 4. They did, and they did obeisance to the dragon who had given the authority to the beast, and they did obeisance to the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? Obeisance means to bow down. One of the things I did not realize 
in years past uh, was the degree to which the post-war Jewish leadership was willing to wear Caesar's name, declare him Lord and Savior, bow down to his satanic images. In fact, occultism flourished. But in terms of obeisance or bowing down to Caesar, the surviving Israelites finally did what Christians consistently refused to do, and they were martyred for. And those Jews who refused were also killed. Now, to anticipate next week, the 42 months of verse 5 cannot refer to A.D. 67 to 70. That's where most preterists put it, A.D. 67. In fact, they only focus on the first three and a half years of the war. I believe the verses refer to the second half of the seven-year war, A.D. 70 through 74. The context demands it. Very briefly, if the killing of Nero in verse 3a is June of A.D. 68, and if the revival of the beast of the empire happens in A.D. 69, that's the second part of verse 3, you can't be going back to A.D. 66 in verses 5 and 6. It does not make sense. And even the content shows that. Verses 5 and 6 indicate that Titus would enter into the temple, would speak incredible blasphemies against God inside that temple. We'll look at that next week. But that could only happen in A.D. 70. That's the first time any Roman Empire, emperor got into the Holy of Holies. That's the only time that that could happen. But even after being in the temple in AD 70, the text says that Titus will be given authority to continue to make war for an additional 42 months. This is the second half of the seven-year war. And I think too many preterist commentaries mix up the two halves. The war did not finish till AD 74. So the context of verse 4 is AD 70 and afterwards. So when verse seven, uh, 4 says, they did obeisance to the dragon who had given the authority to the beast... And they did obeisance to the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him? That had to have occurred after Titus conquered the city. Okay, the survivors either bowed down to Caesar, calling him a lord, or they were executed. And that the word all refers to all who survive is made crystal clear in verse 15, when it says that those who did not worship the image of the beast would be killed. Okay, so not all of the Jews were willing to do what verse 4 talks about, but it's the whole land that survived. So it's an AD 70, post 70 uh, discussion. Now we're going to talk about this astounding turn of events when we get to verses 11 through 18, because Rome had two allies amongst the Jews. Uh, uh, it was Josephus and Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, people who had demonic prophecies, they considered themselves prophets, Rome valued those prophecies, so did the Jewish leadership, and those two helped preserve a compromised Judaism that survived by giving dual loyalties. Now here's the applicatory part. They gave dual loyalties, bowing to Caesar's throne, his image actually, and declaring total loyalty and allegiance to Caesar's flag and bowing before God and worshiping God with, of course, what they've been doing, the um, traditions of men. Now, those two men knew without that compromise, Israel would be wiped out. Every surviving Jew, without exception, was forced to wear what they called a karagma. That's the Greek word for the mark. It's a different word for the seal that God puts on us, but they get a mark. It's a stamp, really 
a stamp on their right hands and on their foreheads. Now that stamp, and we'll be looking at that later, was an accommodation to the fact that the Jews wore a phylactery on their left hand and no stamp would even be able to be seen there. But it also pictures the fact that there were dual loyalties that they were now going to be making. Uh, They could bow down and worship Jehovah, you know, with their left hand, and they could bow down and worship Caesar with their right hand. But which hand had the preeminence? It's the right hand that has the, the preeminence. You see, Rome was willing to tolerate any religions out there so long as they declared that Caesar was Lord. They were one of the most tolerant of empires, very multicultural. But the right hand had the preeminence. It was devoted to the state. And perhaps the Jews rationalized that this is just symbolic, you know, resistance is futile. Who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with them? There's no point in resisting further. This was a pragmatic move. And we'll look at that subject more in the future. But it does highlight how easy it is for us to rationalize dual loyalties without thinking we are doing so. I'll give you just one simple example, not even with the state. When I was up in Canada, I I worked in the lumber industry, um, but there were two companies that that I worked for that were closed shop union companies. You had to belong to the union or you couldn't work there. And in order to be in that union, you had to take several vows of allegiance to the union. One of the vows was something to the effect of, under no circumstances will I think on my brother or sister in the union no matter what they do. It was kind of crudely written. Um, But they could be involved in criminal activity, and you were duty-bound, first and foremost, to cover for them and not to report them. You could never report anything that a brother or sister in the union did. Well, I couldn't sign on to something like that, so I always made excuses for years. Oh, yeah, I've got prayer meeting on that night. I can't come to your union meeting. I always had some good excuse. So they took my money. They took my dues, but they never got my worship. But there were Christians who were willing to do that. And I asked them, how can you compromise your soul with some of these blind loyalty oaths that you are taking? I don't see how you can do it. But if we realize that an offering of a pinch of incense to Caesar is not mere symbolism, and the early Christians did not see it as symbolism. They refused to do it. And the reason they refused to do it is because it's, it really is something that's an offense to God. And not only is it an offense to God, it gives demons legal ground to get into our lives and to neutralize us. If we realize that, we'll take it more seriously. If we realize that bowing before a Shinto shrine and laying down flowers as presidents and various diplomats have done in Japan is not mere symbolism but opens those men up to demonic affliction, we will not agree to do something like that if the head of state asks us to do it. Now, we can't get into all of the different applications, but the bottom line is we must evaluate our actions by more than social mores, politics and what is visible. There is an invisible world that lusts for our allegiance as well, and we should put it on notice that we are sold out to Jesus 100%. May it be true of each of us. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it gives, the times that it calls us out when we are inconsistent. And I pray that you would help us as a people 
all across this nation to become more and more consistent with your word, not being ashamed of Christ and any of the words of his Bible, uh, lest he be ashamed of us. May we, Father, uh, be sold out for the crown rights of King Jesus over every square inch of planet Earth. Uh, help us not to have this dualism that is so rife in the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that um, whatever avenues we can use, whether it's the social media or just conversations with friends, it would be clear that the stand that we take is a stand for a beautiful Savior, and the stand that others take is a stand for a very ugly, scary monster. I pray, Father, that this image would be burned into our memories forever, that we would not forget it. In Jesus' name, amen.